0: This is the London Fintech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t shirts, of finance and technology,
1: bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now.
2: Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is London Fintech Podcast, episode 154, brought to you in association with Smart Pension. I'm delighted to be joined today, well I'm actually joined today, he's on the other side of Skype and all my wires are not really working so we'll see how it goes, by Julian Cork, CEO of Landbay, the UK's top fintech buy-to-let mortgage lender. In the last episode we had a strategic overview of how the government response to the Covid virus will change society, the economy and liberty. In this episode we dive down from 30,000 feet to much nearer the coalface to hear about the real politic of life in a fintech right now. As we've covered before, Landbay, one of the London Fintech podcast's favourite UK fintechs, has a great model having a belt and braces approach to risk, both loan-to-value coverage on the property, but also income coverage for the mortgage payments. As a result, Landbay, who were launched in May 2014, has originated over half a billion pounds to date, with an astonishing zero defaults, which by anyone's reckoning is a good performance. However, as the saying goes, the past is not a reliable guide to the future. Whatever your model of risk is or isn't, it definitely doesn't include a historic period of house arrest for billions and economic destruction. So let's dive into the UK property market, by to let, and a practical case study of how one of the best fintechs in London is responding and having to adapt. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. morning Julian thanks for joining me today good morning Mike how are you doing I'm doing very well actually and I was just reflecting that it's a few weeks since we met um, and when we met as I recall we shook hands and we had a drink with some other sort of people at some little uh, event in London and I think that's probably only five weeks ago and it was what we might call what we used to think of as the normal world and one
1: or two things have changed since then Certainly have. I think that was at the um, at the kind of outset of when people were starting to think about what does social distancing mean. They had um, hand sanitizer on the entry point, but everyone still shook hands. So yeah, certainly things have changed significantly there. And um, yeah, I'm very thankful myself because I am um, decided because we're going to have no guests, I've converted the spare bedroom into an office. So I actually have a bit of space in a room in a house full of teenagers and school teacher. So it's um, a challenging time.
2: Absolutely. You definitely need to get your space in those circumstances, as many other people have found. And um, talking of shaking hands, I mean, it was at the stage where people would stick their hand out and they'd shake it. And then they sort of discreetly try and sort of wipe it on their bum or something in case they picked up any virus. There's a bit of anxiety. And a few days later, I went skiing, which was very aborted. But there was a bizarre sight that I've never seen in the sort of loos at Heathrow, which is of men queuing up at the, the, the basins to wash their hands after doing their doing their at duty. At least one,
1: one good thing will come out of this eh
2: Yes exactly and I quite like the, uh, the, the theory or the model at the moment of, or the observation that actually what caused the peak allegedly may well have been social distancing i.e. anti-social distancing and people washing their hands more thoroughly but we will get to see about that. So I was going to go off skiing and, and have a nice time and, and come back and do stuff on my book and uh, you were busy about to go off to hospital to have your uh, knee made bionic or something like that and then presumably after a couple of days off work you were going to go back and and be normal
1: so what actually happened after i saw you after we last met had some knee surgery which has been a resounding success and very useful because now i can go out and walk the dog in this lockdown environment managed to get back to the lambe um, hq in victoria for a few days before we um we decided to shut up our physical shop and um, move everyone back home. So yeah, it's been a um, busy, busy journey since then because there've been huge amounts of changes across the whole mortgage market. And um, you know, we've been very lucky, I think, at Lambay because obviously being a new fintech, our platforms, our voice over IP, everything, fully in the cloud. So it meant that there's some of the drama that a lot of um, legacy firms have had about um, moving to a fully virtual environment really haven't been there for us. But there's been an awful lot to keep us busy within the mortgage and buy-to-let market in the UK.
2: Yes, as we were noting before, certainly based on my observation, a simple two-factor model is that over the last few weeks, you've had two categories of people, one of whom have been busier than ever doing whatever, even if it's just putting out fires or sort of just shuffling stuff around and, and things like that. Or we go to a, a delicatessen around here that just won the award for Kent's Best Delicatessen. And, and this guy's built up his business over a long, slow period of time. Part of the Square is the estate, actually. They make champagne, 2,000 acres of it on the North Downs around here. Mm, very nice. Yeah, very nice. Um, but anyway, this guy, very slow start to business in the usual way. You know, like the Beatles were an overnight success, but... Uh, First, they spent ten, ten years in pubs and clubs and every dive paying to one man and his dog. And in the same way, this business has been going some time. And, and this chap has only taken one day off in the last five weeks. He's absolutely shattered. You know, the turnover's gone through the roof, as you might imagine, so they're, they're exhausted. So there are people like you and him who have been really busy, and then there are people like me and many others I know that sort of the wind just disappeared from the sails and, and all the plans went out the window, and they got a little bit distracted. And it's quite hard to find people who are in the... Uh, the middle actually so um, the other thing of course is that when you're busy time flies by quite quickly so you probably feel it's not that long since i saw you whereas for me it seems like sort of another lifetime
1: now one of the challenges about having the um your office in your spare room though is that you tend to work ridiculous hours because you just think you're going to go in and check something or just send that one email or just for, just skype that one person etc and um you, you find you've um, been working since six thirty in the morning when you woke up and suddenly it's lunchtime, you know so you know, it's getting a good balance and, and you know, one of the things I liked was the commute was a good barrier between home and work and that's just merged completely. Luckily this weekend I managed to turn off everything and and, um, and not have that interaction but it's been the first one for, for many actually.
2: Yes, yes. Well there's lots of things that one just does in life and like commuting it seems a pile of hassle or something like that, something you'd rather not do and then you don't do it and so you find it had a, quite a positive side effects so it's quite some time since I worked sort of five days a week in London but the same thing it was a half a mile walk to the station here half a mile at the other end and it would just clear your head and settle and by the time you got home you were much more sort of calm centred and back in the home mode but I mean of course with writing this book I mean I was getting it for three months in a row at half four in the morning it's crazy you know just sort of writing and writing and all that kind of thing um, and I think that everybody finds ways to adapt and one of the things I found useful is now you've got your sort of study set up which is to implement a, a rule that you'll only work in your study. So at least there is some way you can shut the door on and, you know, and, and that's it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very, very wise idea.
2: Right. So in terms of how did you get to where you are today, we've sort of covered the last five weeks very briefly. Before then, what was your career journey, Julian? I think I remember one of the first interactions we had some time ago was that you said you'd listen to the London Fintech podcast while walking around the Australian Outback or somewhere kind of far away like That's
1: that. Absolutely. It's when I first um, really got into um, into Fintech. I was based in Sydney and I was working for Macquarie Group over there. And I was going on large walks around the bush listening to podcasts and um, yeah, heard your dulcet tones explaining what was happening in London right now in the world of T-shirts and um, suits, yeah, bridging it, yeah.
2: <laughs> there were rather fewer T-shirts than there were. And presumably you were, you were just sort of doing a modern version of the uh, Aboriginal walkabout in the desert, and they, they listened to the ancestors to guide them <laughs> countless thousands of miles, whereas you actually listen to sort of podcasts and all that kind of stuff. And, and in, the same, exactly. in, a, in a parallel way, actually, I presume that listening to podcasts, just like the Aborigines listening to ancestors guided them, did actually in, in some part guide you towards fintech and thinking there's a different world and uh
1: yeah so so I'd, I'd um as a graduate i joined jp morgan and moved into their um technology um group and worked for there for, for 15 years actually until i became a managing director there and, and always been in fintech but it was obviously never called fintech because it was working in the technology of a large investment bank i've had a career in um in basically jp morgan and macquarie group and in both i've been either kind of in the technology space or running technology-enabled businesses. So, for example, in, um, in J.P. Morgan, I headed their global derivatives services business that does um, valuations of esoteric derivatives using all the computer models that, that we'd um, developed within the investment bank. So um, various different roles like that. And yeah, I had a real opportunity as I was coming back from Australia back in 2014-15 To join Lambay. I've known John Goodall, who's the CEO of Lambay for many years. And um, we'd been talking about what was happening in the fintech space. And I turned down the job at another large investment bank and moved into to be employee number eight, nine or something in in Lambay and haven't looked back. Actually, it's been great. And the great thing about fintech, I think, is that, you know, you can get involved in all sorts of different pieces. So obviously get it very, very busy in, in Lambay, but also because I've got a lot, lot of experience working in, in larger investment banking organizations and big teams and global setups, etc. You know, I've been able to um, secure a number of different advisory board memberships or non-exec directorships on other fintech companies as well to help other people as well. It means that you have a really kind of wide range and it keeps you very interested.
2: Ah, excellent. Well, apart from the fact that I know you've got a copy of the great book, I will now actually spend sort of a little while
1: selling you a great book. Opportunity to plug. Fantastic.
2: Absolutely. So I can get another um, post-tax half a pint of beer profit uh, out of the book. There's not much margins. Um, but also I'd have to wait quite a long time for that half pint to be poured. So diving into the mortgage stuff, and let's putting all the sort of the COVID stuff behind us at the moment. Mortgages, property, yadi yada, yadi. It's something that everyone's sort of vaguely aware of. In FS, as I've said many times, there are many, 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 many silos, and we're vaguely aware of most of them, but only vaguely aware. So, somebody like me, for example, is vaguely aware that the government, in its perpetually infinite wisdom, last year or the year before or something, started to crack crack down on on buy-to-let lending, i.e., disincentivise it one way and another, which is pretty crazy. As if you are young, or if you are not, if you are middle-aged and not so well off, it's next to impossible to buy houses in London and, and things like that. So. They then disincentivise people buying them to rent out, thereby reducing rental supply, uh, all of which seemed a little bit mad to me. Unsurprisingly, my knowledge goes about that far in terms of what's happening. So maybe you can tell us, let's just call it before Christmas last year, before the world complete changed, what in a nutshell was going on in, in mortgages and buy-to-let and, and UK
1: property, just to give us all a bit of a, a background context for, for what's actually now happening. OK, excellent. So um, some context on the UK buy-to-let. So private rental sector housing accounts for nearly 20% of UK um, housing stocks, that's about 5 million units. And that's actually been growing quite a lot since 2006. And the amount that is in private rental sector versus public rental sector has been overtaken recently. So according to RICS, the surveying guidelines, about 1.8 million additional rental properties are going to be actually required by 2025. And so the government um, changes that you you, um, spoke about earlier, things like changes to mortgage interest tax relief that that came in in 2017, where the the interest that individuals are paying on their mortgages is no longer going to be able to be offset against tax. Um, Increased stamp duty. um, The the government put an increased stamp duty, an additional 3% for buy-to-let and second home purchases from um, April 2016. And um, a tightening of um, the PRA guidelines for buy to let also came into, into play, where there were um, stresses on um, interest coverage ratios from 2017 as well, and additional underwriting for portfolio landlords, I.e. people who have a large number of different properties, looking at the um, affordability of those as a whole. As you spoke about at the beginning of the um, podcast, yeah, we, we look at loan-to-value coverage and interest income coverage. So the ICR um, stresses are something we've always always done, but those other changes to the market have um, seen some big big shifts in the battle out world actually. So, you know, a couple of a couple of things that um, come out of that: the changes to mortgage interest tax relief means that while Historically, individuals own properties and claim tax back on the interest that they were paying. They're unable to do that anymore. So what we've seen is a is a growth in limited company borrowing. So people set up their own individual limited companies and um, use those to purchase the property so they can actually affect the interest tax relief because that's under company law rather than um, rather than property law.
2: Again, I you know I sort of vaguely aware of, of many things and not really aware of anything in particular. But I think I'd seen a comment along the lines that the net impact of all these changes had been to dissuade the person who's got one flat or one house to rent out and more not persuade but has moved the market into people who've got more portfolios is that the case or if I want to if I want to buy a flat and and rent it out and get a buy to let mortgage tomorrow is it still okay that I can do it just to put in the company of course which is a pile of hassle and has overheads
1: in itself yeah, what we've seen is the proportion of kind of professional landlords borrowing has in, increased significantly. So, if you look at the in the kind of world of um, buy to let, you know, seventeen percent of landlords have five or more properties, and that actually equates to over or nearly fifty percent of all the tenancies that are out there. So you have a, a strong weighting towards those portfolio landlords yeah about 45 percent of landlords today have just one property and that's about 20 percent of the tenancies out there in the the uk so you can see that you know there is a strong weighting towards more and more professionalization of this market and that's kind of linked also to the stamp tax duty changes because if you're adding an additional three percent onto your purchase of your buy to let property you need to be thinking about it from a long-term cash flow perspective as opposed to thinking about it from a capital appreciation of your house perspective, because you're already 3% down before you even started. So a lot of individuals who would individually buy a buy to let house and think about the yeah, appreciation of the underlying property asset would be dissuaded by the additional stamp tax. And so that professionalization had some real positives, because um, you can see that the um, the quality of, of landlords tends to be stronger for portfolio landlords. And so therefore, renters are getting um, better service and, and better Better properties, so yeah, there, there there are some shifts there as well. But the big thing that's that's out there is the shift in in terms of the type of buy-to-let that's out there at the moment. So right now, I think there's about 260 billion pounds worth of buy-to-let lending in in the market, and of that, um, about 30 billion is kind of specialist buy-to-let outstanding and so when i talk about specialist buy-to-let and that's the area the lambo really focuses on that's buy-to-let properties that are held within special purpose vehicles or the limited companies that's portfolio landlords and that's also properties which are um, houses of multiple occupancy like student houses or multi-unit freehold blocks or small small blocks of flats so out of the you know only about 10 percent is specialist now we think that over the next five years or so the buy-to-let Outstanding debt is going to grow by about 4% to just over 310 billion pounds. But the specialist piece, because of all these tax changes and because of all the um, all the all the things that are happening in the market in terms of um, underwriting guidelines, etc., the specialist piece is probably going to grow about 20%. So we think that you know by the beginning of 2025, you know you're going to end up with an outstanding buy-to-let lending of about 310 billion pounds coupled with 88 billion pounds worth of specialist lending so that's um that's been significant growth in that space by over 50 billion pounds a big shift and that's driven by these legacy changes and I'm sure we're going to go back on to a little bit on yeah you know, what are the ramifications of the of the current market on on all of this stuff but because of strong underwriting capability and really thinking about the affordability testing and stress testing whole portfolios rather than um, just individual properties, it means that the market tends to be slightly more resilient as well.
2: Okay, so net-net, what we're seeing there, uh, and let's not waste time on how the government has made property inaccessible left, right and centre for people in terms of buying and and, and the challenges of rental. But net net, we're we're seeing the sort of shift the you might might call the institutionalization that we've seen in other areas of fintech and other areas of P2P, which it starts I mean P2P started being for the people, you know, one individual to another individual via Zopra in two thousand and five. But before you know it, it's institutional funds uh, and and all that kind of thing. So there's a big strategic thing going on there. So just very briefly, as I did mention your astonishingly impressive 0% default rate in the past five, six years, the very, very briefly and just very simplistically, because nobody knows, what are people just generally saying about how this is going to impact property prices going forward. So I mean, I was actually wondering the other day whether sort of premium wines like sort of Premier Cru Burgundies, which has long since got far too expensive for podcasters like me to buy might actually start coming down. I mean, are there any sort of forecasts that the housing market's going to go up down sideways or is it still that nobody's got a bloody clue and hasn't really thought about it other than waffling about it in some random article where they don't really know?
1: Well, I think that's the that's, that's billion dollar, a billion pound question really, isn't it? Because you know, when you've got no price transparency because you've got nobody buying and selling, it's impossible to really tell what the pricing looks like. What it does mean is it makes it extremely difficult when you're underwriting new property debt to understand what the loan-to-value coverage should be, or yeah, you know, what the um, mortgage um, income payments should be for rental on that as well. So because you've got that huge slow slowdown, you've got zero price transparency. I've heard um, estimates from the the kind of small five percent dip and positive next year over all the way to a twenty percent dip over a more um, elongated period. But frankly, anybody who's giving estimates is just guessing right people do not know so um, yeah we've got to get to price transparency to really understand you know what the market's looking like what I can say is that there is going to be pent-up demand you've got you've got buyers and sellers in the market who will want to do transactions and you have underlying demand in the UK buy to let market because you have um, underlying demand for rental properties in all regions across the uk because of the affordability of housing so you know the demand side of the markets there and the supply side of the markets It's just making sure that these um these two are going to come together and the expectations of each in terms of discount and requirement for return are actually met and so one hopes that um, standard market economics will will come to the forefront of this to help us um get to a stable Housing market, once we're in a more normal situation.
2: Okay, so uh, again, strategically, linking back to what I said last week, I didn't say too much about. liberty but I think one of the issues there which is uh, easily forgotten is that one of the things about liberty is that you do have a free market you have a market with transactions and and a market with transactions gives you some prices and from those prices you can do things like calculate risk etc etc it's very much harder when we're into almost what you might call a sort of second world war command and control economy at the moment where the government does things like well I don't know it's banned them but basically there are the bugger all property transactions going on but also then it says oh we can have mortgage holidays and things like that we've all almost dropped out of a a free market system which purely from the technical perspective of somebody whose job it was to calculate risk in the past means that to your opening point there you can't calculate risk because nobody knows you know if I was sort of sitting at the top of climb what's these days or, or whatever my sort of advice to the chairman would be nobody knows chairman so on these mortgage holidays and, and, and all this kind of stuff, it, I did stand in front of a Polish lady a few weeks ago outside the delicatessen and she had a, a house in Wimbledon that she was um, renting out and she and her husband were renting another property somewhere else. They've got tenants in their own house. And uh, what the government's done is destroyed both their businesses. They've got no money coming in. They couldn't pay their rent. And they were in a bit of a tricky, tricky spot. The poor people. That was weeks ago. I don't know what happened. So I can't quite remember. We don't. Doesn't matter too much. But did the government do something like a, I don't know, a three-month mortgage holiday? And and what about renters? What happens with renters? Run out of money right now?
1: So in the home-owned mortgage market, the the individuals are able to have a mortgage holiday, and it should be very clear. It's a holiday. It's not a. Um, stopping of the interest the interest still continues and you you're still going to be paying um the the interest at some stage in the buy to let space though the the very important thing is that mortgage holidays are um also um, mandated but it's to pass on the benefit to the renters so if you're if the people renting properties are having difficulty then the landlord can um ask for a rental holiday that then gets passed back to the um to the underlying renter so it's not not to make the landlords have a break it is to um to help the people renting the properties
2: okay so just the obvious question then so let's say i own a property i don't have a mortgage on it and my tenants have lost all their income and they can't pay um is any protection against them being
1: kicked out by me There is a moratorium in terms of taking action against tenants for three months as well. And um, so landlords aren't able to do that and lenders are not able to do that to landlords who are not, um, not paying their mortgage.
2: I see. So, in a, in a sense, things are frozen, although, as you say, behind the scenes, the interest is still clocking up. Okay, so that's the kind of macro y stuff. Let's go nearer to the coalface now in terms of Land Bay. Again, I mean, it's sort of calmed down, I'm glad to say, but at the beginning of all this, the government was coming out with a PR announcement a day, you know, furloughing and, uh, and, and investment funds and this and that and the other. And, you know, one sees sort of take up rates of 1% or 2% on some of these schemes and all this kind of stuff. So, there's a usual gap between policy idea and you know, six o'clock news, soundbite, and actually what happens in reality. In terms of you guys, the extent you feel sort of able to share it, how have some of these micro initiatives affected you? Or is Lambe so busy, you haven't had to bother sort
1: of furloughing people or anything like that? So the changes in in, in the environment have had a big impact on Lambe in a number of different ways. So Lambe makes most of its revenue through annuity revenue from its ongoing servicing and performance fees for its mortgages, but it also obviously makes money upfront for each time we um, complete a mortgage. And so with the volume of new mortgages going down, you know, because you can't actually do physical valuations in this environment, and a lot of our funding partners require us to do a physical valuation, you see the, a, um, a slight reduction in revenue from that perspective. So what have we been focused on? Um, we've been really looking to make sure that we can continue to, to provide the great service for our brokers and for our borrowers and, and service the mortgages, et cetera, and so doing a lot of work in that. But of course, we've done a lot to um, manage the cost base as well. So we have furloughed a number of different staff as well, in the, mainly in our underwriting and um, some of the sales and phone support and a little bit in technology, all areas where if you've got new mortgages coming in, if you need these people but if you don't have the new mortgages coming in which we don't at this stage for you know a, a, a significant reduction we don't need those staff we've also done a couple of other things you know everyone's taken a um small salary reduction and and that's um that's helped um increase the runway for us and it's all about managing risks so that Lambay can be really um successful on the other side and be able to bounce back quickly as the um as the demand comes back there as well
2: i think one of the um One of the challenges, particularly in the UK, I think other countries or most countries perhaps in Europe have been a little bit better in terms of giving some visibility going forward is that given our mono obsession with the NHS and the COVID and the government refusing to give any indication going forwards, we're very short of some plan which enables businesses to plan. So, for example, whether it's a good, bad or ugly, let's say that, uh, you know, the government comes out and says, well, OK, in three months' time, we'll be fully out of lockdown and that'll be it. If people get sick, so be it. But we've got plenty of um, we've got plenty of capacity in the NHS and you can't get rid of the viruses from society, so, so be it. And over the next three months, we'll, you know, in the first month, we'll open restaurants and the second month, this, and the third month, everything goes back to normal then at least a COO like you uh, and a board that you sit on can sit there and actually have a plan for several months but when we're traveling in this fog where literally we don't know what someone's going to spit out tomorrow for example Dominic Rabb suddenly spat out five tests out of the blue uh, which mm. changed everything it must be like driving in fog in a sense you can't drive quickly in fog because you're always worried you have to stamp on the brakes because you might suddenly hit something.
1: Well, we just got to plan for the plan for the worst and hope for the best. You know, one of the ways in which we're working and we're working very closely with our board on is to make sure that we're in a good position for a zero revenue coming in for the rest of the year, so that then we can have upside off the off the back of that. So it's about you know being being kind of working with our team, working with the partners we've got out there. You know, we're looking at other areas where we can bring forward revenue, etc. You know, there, there's a lot of things to keep an exec team very busy in this stage.
2: No, absolutely. I'm merely thinking that the impact of having transparency versus zero transparency in the zero transparency, as you say, it's a bit like we're stuck in a, in a boat in the ocean and we're heading towards, say, South Africa. We've got, you know, five gallons of water and, <laughs> and we say, how far is it? Oh, no idea. Oh, my God, what can we get away with? We go, you know, so we try and drink sort of one cup a day or something like that. That's very different from saying we're, we're three weeks to go and then you sort of you know give yourself a bit of a margin and, and,
1: and plan for plan for four. anyway hopefully that will all become clearer yeah and the best thing to do in, a, in that boat situation is make sure you're continuing to travel in a straight line and know where you're trying to get to and that's 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 what we've got to try and do
2: yes 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 right okay so just to wrap up the main course in terms of what life is like at the coalface for a COO we've spoken about these abstractions like business model and all that kind of stuff I didn't mean them to mean it, it in a negative fashion whatsoever abstractions are all very good you've mentioned sort of technology technology is also very good but as quite often one has to remind people in in the tech world none of that would actually happen without human beings and uh, going back to you being pretty busy the last few weeks and and, and being being sort of more becalmed and some of your staff being furloughed and some of them being really busy how are the sort of the the wetware challenges going How, how are the challenges with actually from a different perspective a, a company is is a small society it's a, it's a tribe of people how how do you look after your your tribe's morale and, and all these issues
1: yeah it's such an important point mike and the the key thing here is around communication you know as as the environment changes you've got to put in place a whole bunch of new different operational processes for us We've had to think about you know, non-physical valuations, how you deal with payment holidays, You know, how do you do new reporting for all our different stakeholders, et cetera. And, and you've got to link up with your staff to do that. So we've been very lucky at Lambay to have very highly engaged staff uh, at the moment. You know, they, We've been really active on getting feedback. We use some great tools, things like um, Office5 and HiBob that um, mean that we can really understand the pulse of um, how people are feeling and our stuff and putting in place things like um, our weekly stand-up meetings that we used to do physically every week we're now doing over zoom twice a week it does mean that there's a lot of a lot of um Kind of pull communication required from staff. So we've used things like Slido to make sure the exec team get, uh, um, get asked questions and make sure the exec team are accountable to our staff for communication and answering what they need to know, and um, you know, using all the tools at our disposal. But it's non-stop active communication to make sure that staff stay very engaged.
2: Yes, which in a, in a way I think of as perhaps putting oil into the engine, um, and I'm thinking of one in, in example, which obviously I can't say where, but one of my things that I've seen for many, many years, oh, I don't know, about 15, is this idea that technology solves everything, and a diminution of the nature of what it is to be human, all of which sounds abstract, but I'm thinking of one example of a small firm much smaller than yours um, far less successful than yours, where they're all very techy. It's a very tech-driven firm. It's not not in fintech. Very tech-driven firm. And because they're very computery, techy-type people, they tend to view abstractions like, oh, yes, well, look, we're communicating now, Julian. But from a sort of greybeard perspective, the human aspect is very easy to underestimate. You know, you and I could chat on the phone once a week for the rest of the year, but it's completely different from meeting Just actually being people together, and in this particular firm, it seems to me, and I've seen this in other firms in the past, long before this current craziness, is that it is easy to underestimate the importance for human beings of getting together physically in one space, and there's so much greater bandwidth by actually just being next to another person or opposite another person at a table compared to, you know, digital communications. So uh, I'm wondering whether your communications and that have helped have to offset this or whether you're getting some examples and you tend to see this in the old days anyway even in merchant banks before this technology stuff communications with overseas offices you would talk to them and frictions would occur over a period of time and sooner or later it was very necessary for one side to actually physically go and meet the other and go out for a beer or dinner or lunch and and really interact in a full human sense What's your feel on that dimension? Well,
1: first of all, I think I'm very, very much looking forward to the post-lockdown going out for dinner, lunch and beers and things again. I, I do think that there are a lot of a lot of things that can be done online. And you know, the importance of painful as it may be to do a lot of online video meetings where you can actually have the social interaction cues of how people are looking at you, interacting, nodding, etc., etc., as opposed to the less engaged Telephone-only interaction is, is, is a very positive thing. And um, what was also really important is it's not just, you know, top-down communication from exec teams. You need to do it at every single level within the organization and have much more bespoke and relevant content for uh, individual groups. And so one of the things we've been really doing is making sure that each exec checks in with their team on a daily basis and, you know, does the virtual equivalent of the wander around the office saying good morning. Yeah, it's it's such an important thing.
2: Yes, that last bit is quite important because when you're using the word relevant, uh, of course, absolutely, I agree 100%. But also just from an anarchic, chaotic perspective. It's a bit like, this essential, you know, I, I said a message the other week. I think the, uh, I've seen this, someone say on, on, online, there is no such thing as an inessential worker, which I thought was a really nice way of, of, of putting it. And going back to relevant and irrelevant. So let's just use the coffee room metaphor at work in a normal world you're in the coffee room you're just sort of chatting you're talking bollocks you're talking crap or something like that it's very easy to to be too kind of academic about this and regard that as irrelevant or inessential communication and, and my point just in terms of over the medium term the longer this goes on the more companies are going to have to think about this it's just the human nature there isn't there isn't such a thing as inessential communication or irrelevant communication you know meeting you in the coffee room and taking the piss or you know Saying how you're going along, hopping along, is a is a social lubricant that actually connects people. So if one goes to the situation where all that happens is one has business conversations online, you're losing that kind of social social
1: glue, shall we say?
0: So,
2: so that's you, a you vote, that's push. a vote for irrelevant communications. <laughs>
1: and it's something we've tried to address by having social WhatsApp groups and business WhatsApp groups, oh, and uh, the same with Slack channels, so that you can have that banter and you know, sharing things that aren't business relevant even though you're talking to um, your business colleagues, because it is such an important level.
2: Excellent. Right. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. Last week, uh, I did a a giveaway. Um, This time I'm going to ask for something in in return. Uh, Last week, I did a a giveaway of uh, the first three people to contact me. Uh, I do some free board mentoring for. I was contacted very rapidly, I'm pleased to say, and uh, very much enjoying speaking to three of my listeners and trying to help them uh, in a small way with their board challenges. This time, I'd like to ask, for the first time in six years, the listeners, for a little bit of help from one or two of you, if you don't mind. Insofar as I mentioned all the kerfuffle on, on social media, and these days you say something, you get assailed. I actually did an innocent tweet, I thought it was an innocent tweet, on LinkedIn, uh, on, on on Twitter, Saying that uh, I thought a Supreme Court review would be quite good. Uh, anyway, kind of, somehow this went viral. I think it's largely because the person I was responding to had no idea whatsoever. Uh, runs a, a website called Conservative Woman, which clearly appears to have lots of fans mm. using the word fans in the inverted commas. Uh, anyway, I had a sort of another hate review uh, on London FinTech uh, at iTunes, which uh, was complete uh, complete fake review. Now. To an extent in social media one has the saying that haters are going to hate they are but I've just asked a few of the lovers to love a bit so if any of you are out there feeling particularly uh, well disposed towards the London FinTech podcast and use Apple and iTunes um, then it'd be quite nice if you kindly would just do a review, uh, it only needs to be a short one, just so that anybody coming to iTunes can actually uh, find out that I'm not a complete uh, Nazi or one of the fake reviews in the past actually said I said that I said that women should only stay at home <laughs> which actually made me laugh because if I ever suggested that to any of the women I've been with I'd have got biffed. So anyway, so uh, last week was a giveaway uh, this week is a shout out uh, a takeaway. i also like to thank my brand partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrollment.co.uk. So, Julian, you've given us a, an excellent coverage over the last 10 years of the mortgage market, um, the changes, the challenges, in, especially in terms of uh, risk, um, one of my interests, uh, and also the practicalities and some useful tips on how to manage a business and human beings and staff uh, in these circumstances would you like to give uh, some shout outs information to the listeners about um, whether you want some more sex drugs rock and
1: roll or anything like that at land Bay? well i don't think it's sex drugs and rock and roll but it's, um, <laughs> it's two things it's um well land Bay's vision is to be the leading buy to let lending platform And that means that we really want to be the go-to lender in that space and a default option for our brokers. So my first shout-out is for our brokers to make sure you're looking at the Lambay site and your sourcing systems for Lambay's competitive mortgage products and our great service. And the other side of the marketplace, we want to be the partner of choice for those that want to invest in um, buy-to-let mortgages. So my second shout-out is um, for institutions where Lambay's direct forward flow institutional investment opportunities are very strong and give an opportunity to direct, uh, directly invest in um, UK prime by let mortgages.
2: Right. Okay. Well, as I said at the beginning, you guys are one of uh, the London Fintech podcast favorites. John's been on the show a couple of times. You've been a third, so there's very few companies that have been, done three appearances. You've got a brilliant track record. Um, we're all living in an often overused word, but not in the circumstance, totally unprecedented times. I'm very interested to hear what you guys are doing. I'm hoping for all of our benefits that the government starts looking at the many, 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 many factors it needs to balance rather than being obsessed with one. And in particular, I think the thing which for the quiet ones of us, in terms of business-wise at the moment, is easy to forget, which is that abstractions like the economy and GNP and blah, blah, blah are abstractions. But actually what is required sooner rather than later is getting all businesses some certainty over where they're going so they can stop being planning for cautious and getting everybody busy and creative and getting out there and moving it all forward so let's hope julian that it's not too long before i shake your hand again and we have some drinks although uh, actually i've been trying to take a bet out with various chums of mine but nobody will take a bet out with me when handshakes become commonplace in business meetings in in london most people sort of are going down the sort of never again format
1: so we'll have to become japanese and start bowing but i don't know mike i very much look forward to um to meeting you again for a beer and maybe um Maybe not shaking hands there.
2: Uh, well, okay. Well, we can bring some washing up, washing up gloves <laughs> 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 up to the up to the elbows, or those gut gloves that vets use for sort of delivering calves when the sort of things aren't going so well, and uh, cover ourselves in, in wet suits. Anyway, I wish you and Land Bay every success in the future. So, thank you for that.
1: Thank you, Mike. Stay safe.
2: Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at. Mike at London Podcast.com
0: We could sit in a bender all day, watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn. Watching a happy moon Watching a happy moon To come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Away from the city But with the face that's so great goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with